0: As a child I learned this song, maybe y'all remember it. God's beautiful world. I'm not gonna sing it. Nisi, do you wanna sing it? Okay. (laughs) God's beautiful world. God's beautiful world. Anybody else sing that when you were a kid? I love God's beautiful world. He made it for you, he made it for me. I love God's beautiful world. As a child, I was taught to love the world, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. The love of nature was a part of my faith in those days. In fact, my background being Southern Baptist Convention, in 1971, the SBC conducted a poll to find out just how environmental concerned uh, the SBC membership was. At that time, there were 12 million members of the SBC. I think there's something like 16 today. And it found that 82% of pastors... 76% of Sunday school teachers, and in the Southern Baptist Convention, not just kids went to Sunday school, but adults as well, and so that represents a lot of people, but 82% of pastors, 76% of Sunday school teachers believe that churches, now this is so interesting to me, should lead the effort to solve air and water pollution problems. But should lead the effort. Now, 1971, I think, was when they had the first Earth Day, and uh, so it was kind of the the way the movement of our culture at that time. But I was so impressed with the SBC in doing that back in those days. In the Christian school movement and in the homeschool movement, there were two major curriculum publishers. Uh, one was Abeka, and one was uh, Bob Jones University Press, and both of those. Publication arms emphasized in their curriculum the need for Christians to be environmentally responsible and encourage children to be uh, good stewards of the environment. In fact, in 1989, Abeka released a textbook that praised capitalism, no surprise there, but it also had a very strong warning. Of the environmental dangers of the free market system and I think that if you would have an organization today that would warn of the environmental dangers of capitalism they might be labeled a liberal group but the SBC was in uh, involved in that as well as this very conservative uh, Christian school curriculum company but two things changed the conservative Christian world, away from a pro-environment position. In fact, it turned their love for the environment and their commitment to a better environment almost to a contempt for not just the environment, but for any efforts to protect the environment. Those two things are politics, number one. Evangelicals aligned with a particular political party, in the late 70s and the 80s, and it kind of grew and grew and grew in that marriage when they got in bed with that political party. And When it did that, they lost their commitment to the environment. In fact, by 1993, the Christian environment stewardship movement uh, had just uh, all but disappeared from the rhetoric of the religious right and in its place became a, uh, an opposition to environmental efforts and uh, a denial of any human involvement or human cause to climate change. It wasn't that way back in the earlier years. And politics had such an impact upon the view of uh, conservative Christians for the environment that in today's world, If you are an environmentalist, then it is just assumed that you're a Democrat. And that's how much of a switch that was. Those of us who remember Joni Collins singing that song will also remember that the president who established the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, was not a Democrat. It was a Republican president, Richard Nixon. We won't go into all the other things that Nixon did, but that was a, that was one that I approve of greatly. So politics turned the religious right against the environment. A second thing that turned the religious right against the environment, and this was a part of my culture too, and that was this thing called the rapture. Does anybody uh, know what the rapture is all about? Anybody have heard of that before? It's a view of the end times that says... At the end of the world, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to just uh, do a heavenly Hoover, or I guess today, a divine Dyson, and just suck up all the Christians, (laughs) and take them to heaven, and just leave all the pagan non-Christians, and in the Baptist world, that was anybody that wasn't a Baptist, uh, to go through the tribulation here on earth, and a big part of that rapture scenario was the destruction of the planet. So we don't need to worry about the planet. We don't need to worry about the porcupines or the pine trees or the prairies because they're all going to burn anyway. The only thing that God is interested in, and this is the thing, these are the, some of the things that we were taught, the only thing that God is interested in is saving your soul so you can escape the tribulation. And so we don't have to worry about the planet. We don't have to worry about anything to do with the environment. There's a great scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, no relation, I don't think of, to me. He's a British scholar, and he, he he's a an out-of-the-box thinker. And he's summed up the rapture theory. Why wallpaper the house if it's going to be knocked down tomorrow? And a lot of uh, of the religious right bought into that view. They so thought the coming of Jesus was imminent, gonna happen any day, that why waste our time on the environment? Now, I haven't believed in the rapture theory since I was a freshman at Southwest Baptist College, now Southwest Baptist University. I had a great New Testament professor named Dr. Gerald Cohen, who just basically said the rapture view is bullshit. And. Uh, <laughs> And that kind of caught my attention, <laughs> as it did yours, and so he just laid it out, and so I, I began to study the rapture in my freshman year of college uh, with with really intensity, and, uh, and I came down on the side that yeah, it really is what he said. <laughs> but you know, you may believe that, and I apologize that I just called just called it that. But that was Dr. Cohen. Let's just blame it on him. <laughs> but something happened, and, it, and it, you know, it wasn't until I was an adult, however, that I, that I became a lover of the environment, that I became a tree hugger. And so the question is, how did that happen? How, and, and what happened is love changed my worldview of the environment. Love caused me to love the environment. In fact, my love for the environment grew, almost exploded, it seems like, overnight when I began to realize more about who God is in my own life, my perception of God versus what my perception of God used to be, and how I learned about how much God loves nature, the environment. I love the passage in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, and that doesn't mean just all people. And the context is to all things, and has compassion on all that he has made. That word translated good, you've read before, if you've read the poem in Genesis chapter 1 of creation. After the each day of creation, God said, it is good. Same word here. And that word good means beautiful. So when God looks out over the rail of heaven, metaphorically speaking, you know, I don't actually believe that that there's a rail around heaven. I don't even know where heaven is. That's going to be coming next week. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, the week after Mother's Day, I'm going to talk about Is there a hell, how love changed my worldview of hell and heaven and that kind of stuff. Oh, that's going to be a fun one there. And uh, anyway, the word good is beautiful. God looks out over this planet, and he says, gosh, this is just beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful, and that word compassion is a, is a, is a word that has the idea of, of uh, mercy and tenderness, and it's just a, a wonderful word of how God loves this creation. So when we see the planet as something beautiful, and when you see a work of art that is beautiful, it just is beyond our imagination that anyone could ever destroy that. Why would anyone destroy a beautiful work of art? Well, 51 years ago, May 21, almost 51 years exactly, 1972, a man crawled over the rail of, in St. Peter's Basilica and took a hammer to Michelangelo's uh, sculpture of uh, uh, Pieta and just absolutely shattered the face and you'll see a little bit of that uh, uh, damage there some of the the restoration there's the damage that was done right there and uh, there were hundreds of fragments all over the floor from that sculpture that michelangelo created out of a slab of marble that he unveiled to the world in 1499 and it took the experts about 10 months to restore that work of art. And When it back, went back on display, they had it behind a bulletproof glass, which is how I saw it when I went uh, over to Italy in uh, 1975 on a, on a trip of, of the Bible lands. And we think about that, and we think, well, how would anyone do that to a work of art? How can anybody take a hammer to something that was created so beautifully and do that kind of damage. And I just wish that we would ask the same question with the same genuine interest and intensity. How could anyone destroy the work of art that we call the earth? The work of art that we call nature. How could anyone mistreat this statue of Michelangelo, well, how can anyone mistreat God's creatures, whether they be human, or canine, or feline, or bovine, or what are hogs called, porcine, I knew there's an in there somewhere, those little piggies, how could we mistreat them, I'm not saying don't eat them necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> But there's got to be a humane way to do that, doesn't there? I think so, somehow. Let's go back to Psalm 145.9, the word compassion. If you are uh, an oldie and an old King James Version guy like I was raised with, you'll see that that word was translated tender mercies. And I kind of like that word. As I like the word tender a lot. But that Hebrew word is also translated sometimes in the Hebrew scripture as the womb of a woman. And so the idea, I just love how Hebrew scripture portrays God as one who loves this planet like a mother would love the child that's in her womb. And uh, it's just one of the most beautiful pictures And when I begin to understand that God really does love nature, and the closer I felt like I was becoming to God, the more I felt like, well, if God loves nature, I should love nature too. And if God sees nature as a mother would see the baby in her womb, then why would I not see nature in that same affectionate way? One of the most pro-environmental passages of scripture is Psalm 104 which is a reminder to all of us human beings that (laughs) we are not alone on this planet, that we share this space with a vast array of, of what the psalmist calls God's riches, all of God's creatures, that we are just one among all that God has made. Take a look at a couple of verses out of that Psalm 104. Lord, you have made many things with your wisdom. You made them all. The earth is full of your riches. Look at the sea, so big and wide, with creatures, large and small, that cannot be counted. Ships travel over the ocean. Maybe you've heard this monster, sea monster, before. And there is the sea monster, Leviathan, which you made to play there. Now, underscore that last part. The Leviathan, the sea monster, has a reputation of being a terrorizer. And a threat uh, to cause chaos wherever it would go. But here, the Leviathan is no longer the demon of the deep, but now then Leviathan is a it's just somebody that plays in the water. God sees this sea monster as somebody that plays in the water. One translation of this passage in Psalms says that what it says is that in the Lea, and the Leviathan that you formed to play with him. So it doesn't just picture God as the one that created the Leviathan. It says that God gets in the water and plays with the sea monster himself. Yeah, take a look at this. Maybe this is God's people in the ocean with this monster. That image of a human being swimming and then having a orca, a killer whale, coming and playing with that human being reminds me so much of this passage in Psalms. I've read some studies about orcas, and it's, some of these studies show that it's only when these orcas are confined that this killer instinct kind of is Resurrected within them. But in the freedom of the open waters, they become playthings, at least with this individual. We read about the Leviathan in other books in the scripture in Job chapter 3, which is a really interesting story. I don't believe Job was a literal historical character. The things that talks about Job Uh, In that book, just just, does not sound like anything that we understand God to be. Uh, Job was basically in that story upon uh, a bet that God had with the devil on what would happen. And I just can't see God operating that way, betting with the devil about somebody's life like that. But it's a great story and has some lessons in there, not as history, but as a metaphor and as an allegory. But in Job chapter three, it describes the Leviathan as, and, ha, and magicians coming to, to uh, call to arouse that sea monster Leviathan, so it would swallow up the day that Job was born, so Job would not have to endure all the stuff that he had to go through. And how far the Psalms is than the story of Leviathan in Job? That Leviathan is no longer a monster. To, of which to be afraid. But now then, the Leviathan is a, it's Yahweh's rubber ducky. Now, God created it to play with. And Then 104, chapter 104, verse 31, may the splendor of the Lord endure, may the Lord find pleasure in the living things that he has made. And just as God loves to play with nature, and to watch nature. Yahweh is called by the people to rejoice in nature, to find pleasure in nature. And that Hebrew word for enjoy there is used about 250 times in the Hebrew scripture, and it means to dance for joy, to jump for joy. It it describes that we are to enjoy nature, and then it tells us that not only are we to enjoy nature, it tells us that God finds pleasure in nature, and God likes to laugh with his creation, that when uh, when God is with animals, and God is in the trees, and God is walking in the meadows, that it brings him pleasure, and he laughs. And I found on YouTube several uh, films or clips of, of babies laughing with their particular pet at home. And here's just a a glimpse of that right here. Take a look. God laughs at his creation he has fun with his creation and there's something so sweet about these babies that tell us maybe that's what Jesus means when we just have to come like become like children again just enjoy those simple things that nature gives us and i just i discovered these things in the hebrew scriptures that i just have missed before that god loves he enjoys or she takes pleasure in nature. And if I really want to follow God, if I want to know God, if I want to love God, then I'm going to love what God loves. I'm going to take pleasure in those things that give God pleasure. And I want to laugh at nature like those babies laugh at that dog. One of my favorite authors is Ann Dillard, and she said this, The Lord loves pizzazz. That Hebrew word for enjoy is kind of a pizzazz word. It means to be exhilarated. And it means to be overwhelmed with happiness. So a holiday is a simca, the Hebrew word for that enjoy. A wedding is a simca. Uh, nature is a simca. God enjoys and God loves nature. So I really do think. That if we are ever to save our dying planet, our planet that's in peril, it's going to mean that we have to love it. i discover that I love things, and the things that I love, I take care of. If I love something, I take care of it. I love my cars. So once a week, I'll wash them, pat them. I want to love nature like I love my cars. Generations after me will have nature, they won't have my cars, I need to take care of them. Love of God and loving what God loves turned me into a tree hugger. In the book of Job, God said to Job in the last few chapters of that book, it's a It really is a a, a very interesting and glorious poem and uh, piece of literature. And in essence, God told Job, Job, it's not all about you. And he actually says this, it's about the mountain goats. It's about the ravens. It's about the ostriches. Job, it's not just about you. And you and I need to hear that. Existence is not just about us. It's about all of God's creation. And we must take a longer look at the ostrich and at the soil and the water and the mountains, and we must love them all. Devin, on Earth Day last week, leak week weekend, Devin is my son who's a pastor in Issaquah, Washington, outside of Seattle, he's Denise's son too, by the way. (laughs) And uh, so Devin closed his message last week with these words. In everything we do, may you always wrestle with this question. What does love require of me? It is a lifelong journey of becoming more loving people. And that means becoming more aware of ways to love better. And when I'm faced with the information on how to do that, to have the wisdom, the strength, the courage to make changes to my life so I can live a life. That is more loving. Good words, Devin, wise words. So I've got this cup that we made a few years ago for Earth Day. Love God, love people, love the earth. How can we become more loving to the earth?